This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? sort of understated or what this is a land that prays for a hero the humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival you are listening to greening the apocalypse on triple r102.7 fm oh yes good evening and welcome to this week's edition of greening the apocalypse how you be katie I'm well. Superb. What's that blue thing in front of you? It looks like, a, looks like an Etch-A-Sketch, but is that your iPad? <laughs> Rishi, where have you been for the past, you know, 20 years? Slightly further around there and unable to see that <laughs> past the panel. Yeah, this is a modern device. It's yeah. called a, a tablet. Nice. And he's back. Bonjour. No, what am I saying? <laughs> Buongiorno. Uh, yeah. Buonasera. Buonasera. Back from Italy. How are you, Jed? I am well, thank you. Uh, still a little bit jet-lagged, but um, I'm well and very happy to be back. Superb. And having uh, just had six weeks of travels around uh, Italy? Yeah. I, I, I'm telling both these guys that I was so impressed with their recycling systems over mm. there where they split everything and Kate tells me it's the same in the UK but um, they split everything up into you know paper then plastic then glass and cans and then the general stuff and they even go to the trouble of uh, pulling things apart that might be plastic and aluminium they separate mm. the two and Collect it, all. it is a bit like that in the UK. We've got much, many more different boxes for recycling than we do here. Mm. And I remember arriving here and seeing that one big bin. Yeah. And I was like, awesome, that's really easy. Yeah. How oh, bad and people is that? Still, people still <laughs> complain about that aspect too. Yeah. yeah, but does anyone actually separate that recycling, do they? Don't know. I'd be curious to know where it's all happening, what's happening with it though, Jed, because I mean, obviously we had a debacle earlier this year in Australia where it showed up that. Our entire recycling systems seem to be based on dumping everything in a ship and sending it to China. China yeah. And well, they decided that wasn't going to play anymore. So mm. I would be curious to know. Um, how did you find this? You were also saying uh, off air that there, there was a diff- very different attitude in the news media towards uh, the push for renewable energy in Italy, whereas we have this quite defeatist-looking government and a lot of yeah, bullshit artists so playing. There's only a couple of spots where I could get uh, English TV and I was watching things like Russia Today and uh, Deutsche Weiss, uh, you know, the, in, and French 24, so the the English versions of some of these. And it was just very positive, you know. They're, they're mm. really proud of what they're doing to try and... Um, Reduce the effects of climate change, mm. um, so that they're not having the debates we're having about oh, is this real? Or they're talking about, you know, how much we got to keep prices low. <laughs> <laughs> the consumers want low prices. <laughs> that is such a good Australian accent, Katie. As Australian accents go, I was watching uh, Question Time today. Oh, really? Just channeling school more there. Uh, uh, and <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> They're talking about introducing more electric cars and, you know, mm. more renewable energy and we're going to hit these targets and we're going to do better than these things. And mm. uh, uh, We're not going to hit the targets. It's going to affect the market. 
Christ, listen to that. That's fantastic. You know, you remind me a little bit of the American guy playing an Australian cop at the end of Point Break back in 91. When you get him, when he comes back in. <laughs> uh, but still, nonetheless, quite good. It's uh, w- also curious, Jed, um, about sort of in terms of commendals, the commendable things, obviously, um, splitting waste to be renewed, uh, to be reused and so forth, um, and a lower reliance on high carbon energies. But what about in terms of societal behavioural stuff? I mean, is it... What sort of is there any kind of indication that you saw there that people want to do things differently that they want to? They're just, uh, I mean, they'd all embraced this recycling thing. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't a case of oh, this is a chore. It's yeah. just this is what we do, and yeah. um, you know, all the we, we stayed in you know some apartments, and the people would say, well, this is how we do the recycling, and mm-hmm. this is when the bins go out, and all this sort of stuff. So they seem to have embraced that, and they they. Genuinely trying to get to these targets. How about things like food miles and stuff? You see a lot of the whole slow food movement started in Italy. Yeah, Yeah. they've just they've got a very different attitude. Yeah, I Mm. guess they they seem to use a lot of local food, but who knows? You know, I I did comment at one stage that um, I can't remember what it was. It was a particular fruit that we thought, oh yeah, how come that's available? And I said because they just don't have the import restrictions we do. So they've probably come from Brazil. Ah, uh, okay. You know. Yeah, I mean, to be getting whatever it was, you know, peaches or something at that time of year seemed unusual. Um, And, you know, we were commenting, oh, we wouldn't get that at home. And that's because (laughs) it's not in season here. Yeah. But they just obviously imported it from somewhere because it wouldn't have been in season there. I guess you can do that here too. One Mm. of my friends has just moved from an apartment into a house and she's just noticed how much rubbish she makes. Because in the apartment, you go down and you put your rubbish mm. in with everyone else's into a big, massive container, like a huge big bin. But in in a house, you have your own bin and you're able to notice how much waste you're making. I just thought that was quite interesting. Well, it's quite easy to to be more aware of what you're yeah, doing if you can that's see what it. The splitting up thing did for me. Like, obviously, I noticed. You know, we fill our um, recycling bin every week, but. You actually notice that oh wow the um, the plastic <laughs> the plastic bin was always full mm. and and it was always overflowing you know probably because we were buying little bottles of water and that sort of shit yeah but, yeah um, yeah it, it actually showed me that there's so much plastic <laughs> that, that yeah <laughs> proportionally you know so they, they'd have these little bins that were split into uh, you know four equal sizes and we'd be supplementing the plastic bin with, you know, plastic bags full of plastic type. Yeah. So. Oh, and that's just you. Yeah. And think about everyone else yeah, yeah. on this planet. Yeah. Same thing. Trying to get your head so this is so it's interesting that that's a good direction because you're talking mm. about the scale I don't think a lot of people imagine the sheer scale of like the the population of Earth and 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 all the rest of it. And j- as you say, as you might look at your little bin bag one week and go, "Oh, well, that's not too bad. I'm not chucking out too much today." Um, but then you time like in Australia, I think we've hit 25 million people now, and things like that. Um, it, it was sorry, just talking about scale. It was interesting that in Venice they collect the rubbish every day. Yeah, and, right. And I guess that's because they don't have tips to put it, but. There's blokes in carts go around every day and they go door to door and 
you know, they hit the buzzer ah. and you either bring it out or, in, as I saw in one case, the little old lady out the window drops it down into the cart. Keeping it all tidy for the tourists. Well, partly, but yeah. probably because there are so many tourists like us generating a whole pile of bloody plastic waste and that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah. So that, that's their way of coping with it. Other places like uh, in Florence, they had these big bins on every corner, like an industrial bin, and, you know, there was plastic paper, etc. and people just go and put their stuff in there. Mm. But, um, yeah, they're, they're certainly... Um, so let's imagine that waste magnified by the population of the planet, yeah. which is 7 billion-ish. Is I think it? it is about 7 billion-ish. That is an epic out-of-control problem, and that's just waste. Well, yeah. And, and it wasn't... Got, what got me thinking was all the inputs to making all that. Like, I was just looking at our little bag of plastic, as I said, mostly yeah. bottles, and I thought, imagine all the, the effort that's gone into creating all those bloody plastic bottles, you know, mm. the, the labour, the materials. and the now extraction of crude resources. Yeah, and yeah. now we've got to go and do more work Mm. to recycle them it was yeah it was it was an interesting it's an interesting thought experiment when you're very present when, when you're thinking about that stuff all the time as well and especially like if you're saying that in, in when you're in italy on holidays that you know everything gets separated out which means you're constantly thinking about that which can't help but create a situation where your mind flows onto the next thing and the next thing mm. and the next thing and it's interesting. I mean, this is obviously waste, plastic waste, uh, consumer waste, all of those things, food waste. There, some massive things. That, um, all of this obviously set to, I guess, the three key backdrops that we've discussed often on this show. That being um, climate change, um, resource depletion, uh, as well as economic instabilities. Uh, Tonight's show, it's nice to have just chatted for the first 10 minutes, folks. Um, tonight's show, though, one of the things sort of going to be one of the in-house conversationals, so there's no guest coming in, but something um, set us off the other week. I'm trying to remember the timeline now, but Adam was in here with a uh, return guest and uh, he was co-hosting the other day, David Spratt, and they were discussing the IPCC report, I believe. And one of the things that came up was the notion of... Um, the effort, the sheer efforts that would be required to turn this um, Titanic-sized situation around. Um, and David used the term a war economy or a war effort, mm. didn't he? And that kind of got me thinking, and I threw that at you guys to discuss tonight, about that truly gargantuan scale of what it is that we're looking at. Mm. Indeed. So, yeah, the IPCC report came out... I looked at the title of it just to make sure, you know, when you were talking about it. didn't read the report. <laughs> just the summary. The global warming of 1.5 degrees, an IPCC special report on the impacts of global warming of 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels and related global greenhouse gas emissions pathways in the context of strengthening the global response to the threat of climate change sustainable development and efforts to eradicate poverty snappy title snappy title <laughs> so that was released on monday in south korea and um, by the intergovernmental panel on climate change basically a lot of scientists very much ringing the alarm bells and saying come on we really need to get our, our stuff together mm. um and this is a quote from it if action isn't taken it will take the planet into unprecedented climate future. Um, if we compare what has happened in all of human evolutionary history, 
climate change is shaping the future of our civilization. And this report is a milestone in conveying that message to human society. And it's a really, really difficult message to convey to human society. As we've mm. discussed previously, it's epic. It's really a lot to, you know, it's overwhelming, it's existential, and it's far away, although it's ever increasingly getting closer. Mm. So this idea about getting on a war footing um, is in some ways optimistic because doing a little bit of research to see what great changes can happen in a small amount of time can give you a little bit of hope. Um, But in our research, there was a scenario. Shall I set the scenario? Let's set the scenario because this is mind-blowing. And then we can talk about Mm. some examples of how we might meet this scenario. Mm. World War III is well and truly underway and we are losing For years, our leaders chose to ignore the warnings of our best scientists and top military strategists. Global warming, they told us, was beginning a stealth campaign that would lay waste to vast stretches of the planet, uprooting and killing millions of innocent civilians. But instead of paying heed and taking obvious precautions, we chose to strengthen the enemy with our endless combustion, a billion explosions of a billion pistons inside a billion cylinders have fueled a global threat as lethal as the mushroom-shaped nuclear explosions we long feared. Carbon and methane now represent the deadliest enemy of all time, the first force fully capable of harrying, scattering and impoverishing our entire civilization. It's so full on, isn't it? It's true. Yeah. But the the thing is, the enemy's ourselves. Mm. So... And that's a hard thing to do as well. That that whole take a look at yourself in the mirror mm. aspect is very difficult. So um, I saw a movie on the aeroplane, surprise, surprise, um, and it was uh, one of those Tom Hanks movies about, uh, you know, it was set in Florence, so that's why I watched it, um, where he's decoding, you know, all the, the stuff like the Da Vinci Code type movie. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and what he was doing was uh, trying to find this virus that someone had created because this guy who was a rich uh, chemist Mm. had run a big multinational chemist thing, I think was the story. You know, this guy had created a virus because his way of saving the world was to let this virus loose and basically have the next black plague, which would reduce the population to a manageable level. That's one of the great conspiracy theories out there too, that someone would do that. Yeah. Um, So there's one solution. (laughs) (laughs) We we spoke to um, the the Nobel Prize winning pandemic expert that's right yeah about that and he, he that was an interesting chat actually because he was sort of indicating that to a, the actual that idea that whole movie trope of the the, mm. the deadly virus that escapes and goes he reckons it's actually not all that likely <laughs> they generally kind of it just generally doesn't happen like that although i don't know there's a hell of a lot of things that generally don't happen like that that are starting to happen like that, aren't there? Yeah. So um, we're at war. We're at yeah. war. We've declared war on climate change. We should also include, as well as the billion explosions of a billion pistons inside a billion cylinders, we also have to talk about the um, the many, many millions of acres that are cultivated and turned um, and, de- and areas that are deforested because that's also a huge way of um, removing trapped carbon from soil into the atmosphere mm-hmm. is deforestation and ploughing and topsoil loss. Yeah, and we've just seen some government announcements recently in Australia about mass deforestation. Mm. Oh. Mm. Jesus Christ. Oh, go out and plant some trees, everyone. Maybe if we all planted one tree each in Australia, that'd be 25 million more trees. Mm.
You are listening to a Triple R podcast. Podcast, etc. <laughs> we were discussing the um, overwhelmingly massive war we are currently in uh, called global climate change. Uh, the issues that we are seeing with uh, melting Arctic ice and disappearing glaciers and spread of desert and all sorts of things like that. My God, if you oh just God. say it out loud, you just want to jump off something there. Um, but we'd started to talk about an idea that was introduced into um, our thinking the other week by uh, David Spratt when he was on, uh, which was to place ourselves on a war footing, to actually kind of address this for the massive issue that it is, much like in the 1940s and, and earlier than that, between 1914 and 18. Um, but don't ask me. No, but, but there's some stuff that you've put in here, Kate. This, so, so what we're talking about is a willingness. Well, yeah, I mean, there's some quite amazing examples of very quick change and collaboration happening um, in response to a common enemy. Mm. Um, I'll read out some examples in a second. But bear in mind, this was a common enemy and an immediate threat. Yes. Whereas the war against climate change, the enemy is ourselves and the threat is not so immediate. However... Well, the threat... Let's just... I mean, the threat is immediate, but the threat Mm. doesn't sort of show up as in one front. The, sh- well, the threat shows up bit it's by not bit. Dropping by bit. bombs on you? No, it's not. But it's doing <laughs> things like as as it says. There's an article that you've um, we've been looking through by, on the New Republic, and it talked about how um, the spread of desert and a long term drought, a long term drought in Syria, around about '08, I think it was, um, created a situation where a hell of a lot of people suddenly found themselves moving off the land, which had become denuded. Farmers moving into mm-hmm. cities, um, an increase in population meant a drop in wages because there was you know, more people to fill roles and so forth like that. And it, it, it was interesting. It actually threatened to undermine, um, oh, God, what's that Syrian prick's name? The the, lead, the dictator, Assad, <laughs> that mongrel. Um, yeah, so it's, sort of, it's interesting. So it doesn't show up in one vast hit. What did I call it? What's that Syrian prick called? <laughs> Assad. Oh, yes. These tyrants. But it's not an immediate Let's not threat. Get even started on the Donald. Yeah. <laughs> Golden Merkin. It's not an immediate threat of mass destruction against America or Europe. No. Or yeah. Australia. Mm. I mean, the threat is existential yes. and terrifying, but yeah. there's not going to be a bomb dropped on us tomorrow. No, but I, I got the sense over there, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but I got the sense that they recognised that there was a threat and that it was real mm. and they needed to do something. Now, maybe they weren't going at the pace that they needed to, mm. but it wasn't like here where you can talk to people here who will say, oh, China's not doing anything, why should we? That's a very good segue. We'll come to that segue in just a minute because you're about to give some great examples. Of, oh, about um, China's policies. Well, let's think about. Let's just think first about what is possible if you put your yeah, mind to it. Yeah, let's, and this, we'll this, use this some, is, let's talk about aeroplanes. Yeah, yeah let's, this is quite yes, remarkable. Jed, let's talk about aeroplanes. <laughs> so this is all from this New Republic article, which we'll post on the Facebook page. Um, so in 1941, the world's largest industrial plant under a single roof went up in six months in Michigan. Within months, it was turning out B-24 Liberator bombers every single hour. So that's huge, complicated planes, endlessly more intricate than solar panels or turbine blades, containing 1.2 million parts 
and very precisely, three hundred and thirteen thousand and two hundred and thirty-seven rivets. Mm. And, and there were every other, hour. Every yeah. hour. So, well, they're not taking an hour to build, but <laughs> there, there's one coming out. There's one coming hour. out of but, here. Yeah. But there are other companies, like the North American company, I don't think had built an aeroplane and then ended up producing more um, aeroplanes than than any other company. So, yeah. you know, they went from building whatever they built to you know, these aeroplanes, like almost overnight, and. Mm. Um, yeah, and they've got another really great yeah. example here about appropriate technology. So nearby in Michigan, the army built a tank factory faster than they could actually build the power plant to run it. So they simply towed a steam uh, locomotive to one end of the building and that locomotive provided the steam heat and electricity to um, build the tanks. Yep. And that tank factory produced more tanks than the Germans built in the entire course of the war. And and if you think about the technology, so it's still, I'm, I'm just talking aeroplanes here mm. we went from at just prior to the war where the the british were still flying biplanes as their primary fighters Zzz, yeah, yeah, at, yeah you know 150 miles an hour or something to the end of the war where we were operating jets um, yeah, in about so a five-year time frame in a five-year time frame we've gone from an aeroplane that you know I won't say barely flies because they flew well, but to to jet technology. Yep. So the advances in technology in that time, and um, you know, the the bad side of that is we'd also invented the nuclear bomb and yeah. got it working in that time frame. Yeah, it's incredible. So, and you look at rocket technology, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and so um, the collaboration and but, yep. sportsmanship and whatever you would call it that allowed those people to collaborate. Uh, it goes on in the article to say usually when people from different worlds are dealing with each other, they get into conflicts, dig their heels in deeper, and we see that here every day. Mm-hmm. But because the stakes are so high and moving so fast in World War One and Two, um, no one doubts that if you don't get a handle on this battle in the Atlantic, then the consequences are immediate and grave. So those examples of the aeroplanes... Um, so that they're willing to do this kind of pragmatic trial and error and they start to see that they can't dig their heels in. They need this other person to learn from in the face of a common enemy. Yep. And, and will that ever become, will climate change ever become a common enemy when the enemy is ourselves? Hmm. Hmm. I, well, yeah, I reckon about 20 years ago I was talking to my dad about this stuff and, and his uh, response was when, what did he say, when middle-class voters in Australia, the US and other Western countries start to notice that there's water lapping at their ankles in their house, um, <laughs> there'll be a steadfast determination to turn things around, mm. which is... Um, that's 20 years ago, and there hasn't been much turnaround. It's interesting that we have just thrown in um, that military um, example there because there's a whole bunch of stuff that... I guess what we're trying to look at at the moment in tonight's show and what we're discussing is the idea that if you do put your... If you are willing to set aside a lot of bullshit and, and set your mind to a task that they can be done. I'm I'm still I'm still sadly <laughs> one of those slightly nihilistic <laughs> thinkers with a lot of this stuff, but I am also always fascinated and willing to celebrate human endeavour and human effort. And touching just then on the efforts of the military in World War One to advance its technology... We're also looking at something here that is very large scale and somewhat lo-fi that took place in China, the country that Australian politicians love to point out and say, they're not doing anything about anything. And this would have showed, a lot of people would have seen this recently, but China sent 60,000 soldiers to plant trees. Um, Did you guys get to read this article? 
at all. Mm. No, that's all right. So 60,000 Chinese soldiers were given a new order, planting trees to create new forests. So according to the Asia Times, a regiment of the People's Liberation Army and China's armed police force have been removed from their posts in the northern border areas and and tasked with the efforts of tackling high levels of air pollution. And the project is a big one. Uh, China plans to grow 6.66 million hectares of new forest this year, having already created 33.8 million hectares of forest. Now, I punched in uh, those numbers on a conversion calculator just to double-check that this wasn't a misprint. So 33.8 million hectares in the last five years have been planted out in China. That is 338,000 square kilometres, okay, which is about... 100,000 square kilometres bigger than Victoria. No way. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so that's not a, that's not a small feat. That's, that's what they've already done. Already done. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. And look, I don't know... What size trees are they planting? That, yeah, look, I couldn't actually dig into that one in this article. I'm, I'm a big fan of planting trees. I mean, this, I'd hate to find out down the track that this has caused some incredible new <laughs> problems somehow, like... A forest fire because <laughs> the trees die, or Christ knows what. But oh, you know, yeah. Not everything has to have a doomy edge. I know, I know. So, the, do you remember we interviewed um, Philippa about the Pathways Twenty Forty Vision Project, where they'd yep. uh, CSIRO had they'd worked together with Vale Victorian Eco Innovation Lab and hundreds of other different types of people to work out the best pathway to reach zero emissions by 2040. Mm. And they all included extreme mass tree planting now. Yes. So plant the trees. I don't think bad can come of planting trees. I just, yeah, I shouldn't think like such an arsehole. Um, <laughs> but you <I>, should. <laughs> it's nice to have that type of thinking oh, too. No, but I'm, no, I'm just saying it, was, it, it's a, it, it is, broadly speaking, a great idea. And, and this is another side to the. This is not part of this article, but... Um, one of the good things you could probably do for cities to make cities, um, because you have that huge thing as well where you have um, changes to airstream patterns and things like that in the atmosphere can occur from the heat sink uh, problem that you get with cities. Now, I read this thing many, many years ago. I think it was Atlanta, Georgia. I think it was the city of Atlanta, which is quite a big concrete sprawling metropolis there. And to, as, I, as I vaguely remember this article, it said they did not have any history of uh, tornadoes in that city. But that city got to a point where it was so big and so dense and held so much heat in it, in its thermal mass that it started to create... Its own weather. ...own tornadoes from the updraft, you know. And I'm trying to remember... Was it Atlanta, Georgia? I'm pretty sure it was. It was one of those southern humid Did you dream cities. this, Bushy? No, 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 no. Oh, how dare you? <laughs> how dare you? No. I but, find it difficult sometimes to... Planting out, planting out trees large scale like this is done in an area larger than the state of Victoria that we are broadcasting from cannot be a bad thing. It's extremely, uh, extremely important to plant trees in the city. It lowers the temperature by a lot of degrees. Mm-hmm. It has multiple benefits for yeah, cooling biodiversity, yep. people's comfort, yep. all the things. We absolutely need street trees. And Melbourne's done a great job with the urban forest strategy. Does it potentially planting. also calm the mind a bit? Does it make people less combative? Does it make people... Yeah, we've talked about this before. Your eyeballs need complexity. Mm. You're much happier when you're looking at the diversity of colour and texture and shape mm. in, the, in nature's patterns than you are when you're looking at a flat building. Mm. But the... Um the uh, I was going to say negative thinking, but the the opposed thinking is important. 
because we did a show a long time ago where um, basically Kate and I were on the positive of, you know, it's all right, mankind will solve this. Yeah, and, yeah. And you and Adam were less positive about it. Fewer positive. And, <laughs> and, and uh, I probably was rolling along, I think, uh, with this belief that, yeah, we can do these massive advances in production mm. and technology when we want to and we will because we'll realise that this is real and we've got to get our finger out and do it. Mm. Whereas you guys are uh, probably are from coming from a better knowledge base are saying, well, people have been saying this for 20 years and no one's done anything. Why mm-hmm. would they now? And I think we need to have that thinking because there's a lot of people out there who were like me rolling along thinking... It's actually not that bad yet, and we don't really need to do anything. And and when we do have to, our business will become more efficient. Our our so-called leaders will do the right thing by us, and and they'll trigger all this production and and you know the stuff you're talking about. New scientists would be interesting about what modelling they've done. We might talk about that in a while. But but if we don't have the the thought of what if we do nothing, then that's what will end up happening because we will do nothing because we're basically a complacent mm. um, And we're used beast. to having things done for us too. Yeah, and a lot of the stuff so. that's required is actually a personal change. Mm. Yeah. I think that's a massive thing as well. I mean, as we said, we don't know, we don't really do struggle anymore. No. You know, you, we just don't do struggle. And uh, and, and I find that really such what a challenge. Well, just humans don't do struggle. So the idea of being asked to turn around and pitch in on a large scale to try and turn around... We don't do struggle here in, in this room in Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well like the Western world, broadly mm-hmm. speaking, I mean... I'd, Go on rations. You're going to have one egg a week. Yeah. You know, you, you, we want all your aluminium there's, pots and pans because we're going to make aeroplanes There's plenty of people of, living know? like that across the world. Yeah, and they're we the aren't. ones who are suffering the most. Mm-hmm. And that's the, one of the problems in sub-Saharan Africa and... and 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 parts of Southeast Asia where where you have these inter- entirely monstrous storms now sweeping in off the ocean, parts of Central and Southern America, that's one of the great issues of it. But yeah, the, I constantly at a at a struggle to try and convince my kids sometimes that they need to just stop asking for things because mm. uh, <laughs> Christ, I sound like such a pariah. But uh, there's probably a few people in New South Wales doing struggle in the uh, drought. But um, mm. well, that's right. There is exactly. Mm. Um, you're just then talking about the idea. Our leaders in Australia. Um, it was funny when I was. I remember being a kid and seeing a lot of these issues starting to show up on the news. Even but you know, age of ten or fifteen, and just thinking to myself at the time, if they're on the tally and they're on the news, maybe someone's taking care of it, and it's going to be in the past. But you, the more and more you you see this horrific split in modern politics between you know each side or multiple sides in Australia when it comes to environmental issues, energy issues, all that sort of stuff. We've got yeah, our so-called illustrious leaders. They've got one leg shackled to coal mines and um, and people who want to clear huge swathes of land and all these other things. We've got the Murray Darling, the Murray Darling River. It doesn't have a river in it anymore. It's completely and utterly broken. Yeah, mm. it really is. So we do need a war scale effort to turn this thing around, don't we? And we need completely different leadership. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3RRR. We were talking about large-scale efforts to immobilise people in the face war of... Efforts. War, war efforts. War footings. We've declared war on climate change mm. and we're talking about... 
various different war efforts in the past, the great power of humans to do things very quickly and innovate when there is an immediate threat. Mm. However, the threat is not immediate. We can discuss whether or not you agree with that. And the enemy is ourselves. Indeed. So we are in a bit of a complex situation. We are in a complex situation. And, and that's right. Prior to the, the track, uh, Jed was reminding me of uh, that, what, there was that episode we did a while ago on our deepest fears. Um, and... Oh, God. I mean, I, I had heaps of them. I probably still do if I dig deep enough, but somehow I've managed to contain myself a bit better these days. Um, one of the overriding things that we've discussed along the show is living differently, like voluntarily reducing consumption, voluntarily uh, changing lifestyles. That in itself, I think, is probably one of the greater efforts um, that people have to undertake, especially, I mean, well, during the war, there's a lot of talk about people living on rations, people um, turned, you know, local sports fields into market gardens. Not having any stockings. Not having stockings, that's right. There was the allotment program, which you could speak a bit about, Katie, in the UK. Allotments were... Yeah, so allotments, very dear to my heart. Um, there's allotments in the UK, which are... Um, places, public spaces where you can go and grow your own food and you get mm. a little patch and if you get together with I think 30 it's not even that many, maybe 15 people and go to your local council and request an allotment, mm. you, they have to give you one so um, there's allotments just all over the place oh, lots of them have waiting lists but basically you can get a patch of land to grow food if you want it and when I arrived in Australia, it's like where's all the allotments? Yeah, yeah. Where can I grow food? And that's the reason for starting 3,000 Acres was to try and give people the opportunity to get their hands on some land exactly. to grow food with. For So it is interesting, if we're drawing that comparison that during World War II, uh, there was side by side you had um, this incredible sudden explosion of um, industry where there was a very genuine threat um, coming out of Germany and Japan and there all the industry is like focused on getting all those high-tech pieces of equipment together and on the ground people focused a hell of a lot more on downscaling their needs living so very differently living so very differently and in fact it's kind of unusual it might sound unusual but there was always a lot of anecdotal stories and stuff that came out of people talking quite fondly about their time during the war not because they loved having the constant threat of a bomb falling through the roof but because a lot of people spoke of uh the camaraderie and community that occurred during that time. So Yeah, you have to collaborate and share, talk to your neighbours, think mm. about how you're going to yeah, completely do things differently. This world and lifestyle that we live in at the moment is so very individualistic. Indeed. You're, and, and also nuclear family, you know. You don't collaborate with your neighbours, you don't need to. Mm. Well, what, that's actually quite did We find... Living, Unless you live in Macedon. living out, yeah, <laughs> living out of town. Well, no, it's just it, it's it's oh, a Brunswick. It's a bit quiet. Yeah, there's lots of little pockets of that that do happen. So if we can take that idea of volunteer volunteering reduction in, in consumption and or voluntary behaviours anyway, and perhaps stick it side by side uh, with the redirection of energies and efforts um, into large scale projects. I now, have to. It is becoming the tide's turning a little bit. I think with vo- choosing to live differently and you can see it in fashion so I have this like dirty little habit of following all of these fashion bloggers on Instagram and they're very recently changing there's lots of influencers on Instagram Mm. so people will wear something and then someone else will go and buy it and lots of them are choosing to um, 
shopping up shops and reuse outfits and mm. style rather than purchase new things. Redirect consumption. Redirect, yeah. So, and they're getting that. They're doing that because of pressure yeah. from their followers and from the media. So I do. Hopefully, there's glimpses of things changing. Yeah, I think there's. I'm going to throw two little things, a very similar theme, or pretty much the identical theme, um, two very different responses to a problem. I'm going to throw them in there. Number one, I've got an article here about a Mumbai beach that went from a dump to being a turtle hatchery in two years. Were you familiar with that? Yes, it was amazing. The images, wasn't it? Before pretty and after crazy. Photos. And and because I, again because I'm an ass, um, I put that on Facebook and said I'm probably going to find out that this is fake news. But if not, how fantastic! But over a two year time scale, a large city beach in Mumbai, which was previously and I quote here shin deep in plastic waste, um, has been cleaned. Like all of the plastic has been picked up by volunteers and residents and everything. And now it's suitable for a turtle hatchery. And these green sea turtles are coming. Ah. Uh, Maybe not a green sea turtle. I think what species. Well, the images that were up, like the first image, you could see it was, it looked like a dump, and the second image, I was like, oh, they've just put all the rubbish in bin bags. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I was like, they're not bin bags, they're turtles. That's the thing I do want to know, like where did all that plastic go and was picked up? Because there's a whole bunch of other things I keep. Well, it seeing. might be like China's clean air policy, mm. where China had this policy that they wanted to have. You know, they've got terrible problems with smoke and pollution and all of the major cities. Mm. So they um, came up with this policy where they wanted to enact a clean air movement. So all of the dirty industry stuff, um, chemical factories and that sort of thing, they had to just move immediately. Uh, what's a Bangladesh? Or shut down. Yeah, right. So they made it so very difficult for them to relocate because it's really difficult to relocate a chemicals plant um, that they, most of them, or a lot of them shut, yeah. but a lot of them relocated to places where people weren't taking tourist photos of ah. skylines <laughs> so maybe the rubbish is now with the relocated chemical plants somewhere hidden in the depths of china i think a lot of logging coos out in east gippsland used to do that they'd log right up to within like 100 meters of the road and then leave heaps of trees up so you'd have no idea you'd be driving through there oh, thing, yeah. and then oh, nice 200 meters each direction is just carnage but the cleaner policy i mean if they did it well, rather than just shifting the problem somewhere else. Mm. Again, it's an example of very rapid change happening as a result of... That was a government policy. Yeah. Mm. I think that's one of the... Well, that's the problem. It seems like so often the problem does just get sort of shifted somewhere else. And whereas... I mean, we do talk a lot about individualistic culture. We do have one. But there is something to be said for you as the individual, like doing that, like facing the mirror and going, all right, it stops with me. Like if, if well, everyone, the only thing that you have control over is yourself. That's right. Yeah, to improve your to improve how you're doing it. And, and if you, do I know that, for my own self and trying to improve the way that I live, it's really hard. It's not easy. I keep making mm. stupid decisions every day. I was feeling guilty on the weekend because I was um, doing the gardening, mm. and I was putting stuff in the green bin instead of you know mulching it, mulching and yeah, it yeah. on the garden. I thought, oh, bushy, bushy will belt me. Yeah, <laughs> wrap a rose thorn around your head. <laughs> well, that um, that turtle had that. So the cleaning up of that Mumbai beach, I thought was pretty impressive. I mean, it is, it's very impressive that you can take a beach. And I, I've I've been to India, and there's a hell of a lot of um, waste issues there. Or there was when I was there ten plus years ago. Um, so let's call that big small thinking or small big thinking. Um, there's another thing I want to touch on, and, and I feel like I'm robbing Radio Marinara of some of their content. But have you guys heard of a young fellow whose name is Boyan Slat? 
I, I didn't know his name, but I know the project you're going to talk about. Yeah, yeah. you guys heard of the Ocean Cleanup Project? Mm. The Ocean Cleanup. So, the boy on Slat, right? <laughs> he was born. His, his birthday's two days before mine, July 27th. He was born in 1994. Whoa. I, I'd nearly wrapped up high school at that stage, and he was a wee baby. And he went on, when he was 16 years old, um, he went on a diving holiday in Greece and observed far more plastic than he observed fish. Right, so that's uh, 16, eight years ago, 2010. So he has launched the Ocean Cleanup Project. The Ocean Cleanup Project is absolutely nuts because what this seeks to do is to, you know, the, the famous um, oceanic garbage patches? Mm. Uh, we've got, uh, I think we've got five of them. Let's have a quick look at that map. Try, there's, there's one, yeah, I think maybe all of the major oceans have got a garbage patch, which is just nuts. This is like this, um, what's called a gear. It's like a circulating ocean current that traps um, washed out plastic in these huge areas. It's not like a solid island that you can walk on. It's just these huge patches. Where the hell is the map? Anyway, long and the short of it is this young fella decided, and this is this is... Another thing I wanted to talk about before we wrap up the show tonight is that um, I probably get a bit defeated sometimes maybe because I'm in my early 40s now and I haven't seen a hell of a lot of directional changes and things like that necessarily. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Early 40s, come on. But no, what I'm saying is this this cat's young. (laughs) Get some time up. This dude's young and and he's grown up in a completely different world. He's grown up in a, a very different world to us in terms of, well, just everything. Like, you know... I still, I still am. If not you, then who, Bushy? Exactly. But I, I'm still fucking gobsmacked at the internet's a thing and it works. <laughs> Whereas this kid just grew up with it. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't have a landline. He never had a landline. He never had to buy a twenty meter extension cord to take calls in his bedroom. Okay, so that's a different world. And so there's that's a different perspective on the world. And so this boy on Slack guy, and he raised. Check this out. He raised in um, the Ocean Cleanup Project. Since it started, the organisation has raised $31.5 million US dollars in donations from entrepreneurs in Europe and in Silicon Valley. Jeez, oh. Yeah. yeah. And he is constantly refining these designs and stuff like that. And so these... I can't even describe what this thing looks like by, off the website, but I will we'll put like it up. It's like a boat thing. It's collects. this boat, but it's this big floating kind of... Um, like a big... It's a float. It's got these little skirts that hang down from it, like a curtain. So it's not a net. This is this whole thing. So he was really particular in his design. It weathers... When it survived the storm, the system has been engineered and tested to utilise and withstand the force of the ocean. And while designing the structure, it was considered the load cases that are only expected to occur once every 100 years, i.e. massive storms. So in order for these things to survive and not create more ocean waste, they designed the system to be... Um, limber enough to be able to follow the waves and because the system is free-floating, it can drift when subjected to high current high current speeds. This thing is quite staggering and it doesn't capture... You're done your buoyant. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't capture sea life, right? Because it just <laughs> you captures... You don't get lots of like mashed no, up fish. that's right. Like it's, it's not one of those things where you go, what Caught a great idea. Caught in the idea. curtain flap. Yeah, hey, here's the last ever minky whale. <laughs> Good on your buoyant. You know? So... Right, I want to say two things before we wrap up. Do it. Just a big shout out to Ian Kiernan. Um, sadly, no longer with us, but founder and of Clean Up Australia. Mm. One guy, one idea. Mm. Mobilised 40, million, 40 volunteer. million volunteers across the world to clean up mm. the beaches and the environment and really change the way people thought about the environment. So if not you, then who? If you've got an idea, go out there and do it. That's right. And the second thing is, the, there's been um, the article that we keep referencing um, in the... 
New Republic. I'm just going to get the name of it up here. It's called A World at War um, by Bill McKibben from 2016. That actually talks about what it would take, and there's lots of figures behind it, to um, flip the states over to renewable technology. And all of the boffins in America reckon it's absolutely possible to get to 85% renewables by 2030 in a war effort. So if you're interested in the figures behind that, go and take a look at that article, which we'll link to on Facebook. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.